After 14 published books, Joan Didion was faced with the task of tackling the most difficult book of her career up to that point. The Year of Magical Thinking would be her account of the year following the very intense trauma that had been the death of her husband, John Gregory Dunn. Years leading up to his death, John would be informed that his heart was in bad working condition and that he was in need of a pacemaker. After the operation, feeling restless in Los Angeles, where they had resided for the last 20 years, John felt a strong desire to move to New York City. Living in an apartment on East 71st Street in Manhattan, the couple would frequently take walks in Central Park. Often not the same walk, not through the same parts of the park and separate walks altogether, but they would always make sure to interlock somewhere during their walk, which seems like a very fitting metaphor for their life together. Joan and John literally finished each other's sentences, both in their writing and outside of it. They would therefore spend nearly every living moment together, working together, living together, which would make the death of John all the more difficult to come to terms with. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, originators, and the up-close and personal. I am your host, Jason Nemour Hardin, and today we are celebrating the life of Joan Didion, and in particular, one of her most personal books, The Year of Magical Thinking. I write entirely to find out what I'm thinking, what I'm looking at, what I see and what it means, what I want and what I fear." End quote. A fifth-generation Californian, Joan Didion was born in Sacramento, California on December 5, 1934 to Frank Reese and Edwina Didion. Writing would be essential from early on, and she received her first notebook, a big five blue notebook, when she was five years old. It was given to her by her mother in an attempt to keep her from making a fuss and instead amuse herself by writing down her thoughts, of which she had many. At this age, she wanted to be an actress, something she would later come to understand was very similar to her later profession. Both were playing pretend, both were make-believe. The main difference, she realized, was that writing could be done alone. The first piece she wrote was about a woman who believes herself to be freezing to death in the cold of an Arctic night, only to find when day breaks that she has stumbled into the Sahara Desert where she will die from the heat before lunch. Later in life, Didion still wouldn't be any closer to explaining what kind of five-year-old could conjure up such a story. One explanation for her inclination toward the more gruesome is that she grew up hearing many stories about the Donner Party. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the story, the Donner Party, sometimes called the Donner-Reed Party, was a group of American pioneers who, on their way to California, found themselves snowbound in the Sierra Nevada mountain range in the winter of 1846-1847. Some of the migrants resorted to cannibalism in order to survive eating the bodies of those who had succumbed to the conditions, and thus solidifying their place in macabre history. Didion's family had traveled alongside the Donner Reed party when they migrated for better prospects in California, 
but had parted ways when the Donner Party decided to take their ill-fated shortcut. Her family followed the map they had received and were guided safely to California to the beginning of their new lives. During her childhood, Joan was known as a shy, bookish child, though she actively pushed herself to overcome social anxiety through acting and public speaking. Being an avid book reader, which naturally further expanded her love for the written word, encouraged her to spend much of her adolescence typing out the words of her favorite author, Ernest Hemingway, in order to learn how he structured his sentences. Over time, Hemingway's writing rhythms got stuck in her head, and as a consequence, she learned how to type. Her father, being a finance officer in the Army Air Corps, meant that she and the family were constantly relocating. In her 2003 memoir, Where I Was From, she writes how moving so often made her feel like a perpetual outsider. This naturally did not make it easier for her to make friends, though it most likely further helped her to finally tune her focus within solitary activities, such as writing. One snowbound winter at an army base in Colorado Springs, Colorado, while on break during her senior year at the University of California, Berkeley, Joan was flipping through Vogue magazines with her mother to pass the time. Her mother then pointed out an announcement for Vogue's writing competition for senior college students. The first prize was a job in Paris or New York. You could win that, her mother encouraged. You could win that and live in Paris or New York, wherever you wanted. Joan did just that. She entered the competition and won first place in the essay contest writing a story on the San Francisco architect, William Worcester. Being the winner, she chose New York City. Twenty years old upon arriving in New York City, she almost immediately began working on a novel. It was what was expected from someone such as her. You graduated from high school, got a job, and began writing a novel. It's what you did as an aspiring novelist. So after working all day at Vogue, she would go home, have dinner, and afterwards try her hand at writing the novel. When she would sit down to write, she would have the vision of a starting point, a first scene, or a protagonist, but where the story went from there was to be realized along with the protagonist as words were put on paper. Figuring out where the story would go along with her protagonist would be a writing structure she would use in many of her future pieces. At the time, Vogue was the preeminent fashion magazine in the country, which entailed writing creatively with plenty of sarcasm and humor. Every writer at the magazine was expected to write, at a rapid pace nonetheless, something that would grab the reader. The luxury of writing and rewriting until one was satisfied was non-existent. There was simply no time for it. In a trial by fire... Joan's first piece in Vogue was assigned to her after the initial writer of the piece failed to produce it. Entitled Self-Respect, Its Source's Power, the title was already on the cover of the magazine before the article had been written. Given that the initial writer never materialized the piece, it was suddenly up to Joan to come up with the article based on only the title. Well... The final product was quite impressive, and it didn't take long before those above her at Vogue took notice of her talent. She was unafraid to write stories from her own perspective, and she wrote with originality and finesse. 
While at Vogue, homesick for California, she began writing another novel after her first attempt failed. This one called Run River, about a Sacramento family coming apart, it would be her first official novel. Writer and her future husband, John Gregory Dunn, helped her edit the book and she found an interested publisher. Published in 1963, but far from a success, Jones speculated once that it sold something like 11 copies, which meant she couldn't yet quit her day job. Her stay in vogue would be a lasting one, starting as a promotional copywriter when she graduated from university in 1956. She worked her way up to associate feature editor by the time she left in 1964. Quote, In time of trouble, I had been trained since childhood. Read, learn, work it up, go to the literature. Information was control. End quote. She first met her future husband, John Gregory Dunn, at a New York dinner party. They quickly became friends and fell in love just as quickly, moving in together in 1963 and marrying the next year. Joan would later state that she couldn't have been with someone who wasn't a writer, as that person wouldn't have the patience needed to be with her. After marrying in 1964, she found herself very tired of New York. New York had felt much like an amusement park ride when she'd first arrived, but it was one that she now felt she had overstayed her welcome. It was time to get out of the fair. Soon thereafter, they decided that moving to California for six months was the way to go. Joan put an ad in the Los Angeles Times which read, Writer and wife, no child, desire house. They specifically desired a house on the west side, which was a ridiculously optimistic request by their admission, but somehow still got a house where they had desired, by the Portuguese Bend. Six months at the Portuguese Bend turned into a year. John was working on a book at the time. They supported themselves by writing articles for various magazines such as Life and Esquire, and at one point, they even shared a column. Despite seeing things from very opposite perspectives, they would never turn a piece in without running it by the other one first. They were each other's most trusted reader. Joan and John wanted children, but unable to conceive, they opted for adoption. Then one day the phone rang. Joan was taking a shower when John came into the bathroom and told her that they were being offered a little baby girl for adoption. An hour later, they were standing outside the window of the nursery at St. John's Hospital looking at an infant girl with dark hair. The beads on her wrist spelled N-I for no information. There was no question in their minds that the baby was going to be theirs. Adopted in March 1966, her name would be Quintana Rodon. Joan and John were seen as a golden couple living an often golden life that they split between California and New York. They collaborated on screenplays and co-wrote a column for the Saturday Evening Post called Points West. Their social circles were filled with the literati and the Hollywood smart. She, however, was finding it increasingly more difficult to get inspired. Weeks turned to months, and she was still unable to write. She then left for San Francisco, where the hippie movement was going strong, in hopes of sparking her creative juices. At the time, she became paralyzed by the conviction that writing was an irrelevant act. 
She was convinced that the world as she understood it no longer existed and reached the conclusion that in order for her to work again, it would be necessary for her to come to terms with disorder. The disorder she desired, she would definitely find in San Francisco. It's around this time that Jones started playing with factual stories in the tone of fiction, writing true accounts with the same drive and intensity as she would a fictional piece. These were the stories she was hearing, watching, and experiencing at the time. She found a unique way of conveying them. This unique form of writing would soon be known as new journalism. Quote, Life changes fast. Life changes in the instant. You sit down to dinner and life as you know it ends. End quote. Christmas Eve 2003, Kentana Rowe called Joan and told her that she was too sick to attend dinner. Her symptoms were very similar to the flu at the time, but the following morning, when Kentana called again, she said that she could hardly breathe. She had gone to the emergency room the night before, but had been told she had the flu and was sent back home. By the time she was finally admitted to the hospital on December 25th, she was in need of intensive care and was suddenly plunging rapidly towards death. With her health deteriorating with such furiousness, she was put on life support and subsequently placed into an induced coma. Her condition stabilized, although her odds of survival were not very high. Then, five days later, on December 30, 2003, after a visit to Quintana, who was still in a coma, Joan and John decided to eat dinner at home. Joan made a fire in the apartment fireplace to make it cozy. She had fixed John two drinks and was mixing a salad while conversing casually with John when John suddenly stopped talking mid-sentence. She came out of the kitchen and she saw him. His left hand was raised, but he was slumped motionless in his chair. At first, she thought he was kidding and told him not to play around like that. Then the thought came over her that he might have started to eat and was choking. She moved quickly, attempting to lift him from the chair to perform Heimlich, but he was much too heavy for her and he fell forwards, first hitting the table, then the floor. She then called 911, and they came immediately. The paramedics attempted to resuscitate John, but after a while of not getting any response from him, they decided to take him to the hospital. Joan would later reflect that her husband was by then most likely already dead. The days that followed would be weighted down by grief, confusion, and pain. Her appetite vanished and she wouldn't eat anything except the Chinese porridge dish, congee. Her friend, Calvin Trillin, would go to Chinatown every day and get the dish for her until she began to consume other foods. With Quintana still in a coma, Joan wanted to wait until she came to before they buried John, but this still left many other matters to deal with. The full capacity and consequences of the grief following the death of her husband made themselves present when Joan and a friend were looking through John's clothes in one of the bedroom closets. Her friend suggested that they should eventually get rid of the clothes, to which Joan replied, But what if he comes back? The grieving process would be slow, but it would be alleviated by putting it down in words. 
Nine grueling months following the death of her husband of 39 years, Joan sat down to write about it. The reason she felt that she had to write it down was because no one had ever told her what grief, the madness of grief to be precise, was like. It came as a surprise and a shock. It was a shock nonetheless she knew she needed to deal with. And deal with it she would, as the death would inspire her to dig deep into the minutiae of grief she was experiencing. Although she didn't plan it that way, writing the book was an obvious coping mechanism. She felt she could report on grieving firsthand, but also needed to separate herself from the experience in order to take it in more slowly, as a way to deal with it. She would take on the assignment as a reporter, as a journalist, only this time using herself as the main subject. Joan wrote The Year of Magical Thinking between October 4th and December 31st, 2004, completing it a year and a day after John died. What she found to be most difficult concerning the book was finishing it. As long as she was writing it, she felt in direct connection with her late husband, but she knew that once it was finished, once the story was told, once the words were finalized and the memories were reflected upon, she would have to let go. I had to stop myself from walking into the next room to show him and ask what he thought of it, she would later say. Joan never used to talk with her editor or agent about what she was working on, and in the usual manner the manuscript for The Year of Magical Thinking appeared on the desk of Shelley Wagner, her editor at Knopf. Wagner took it home to read and found that it was as unexpected as it was incredible. The Year of Magical Thinking was a bestseller and immediately received as a classic book on mourning upon its publication. It won the 2005 National Book Award for Nonfiction and was a finalist for both the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Biography or Autobiography. In 2019, the book was ranked 40th on The Guardian's list of the 100 best books of the 21st century. It appealed to many, and maybe so because it was a book about grief written by someone non-religious, which is a rarity. It was, and still is, a deep exploration into the misery and madness of grief without the solace of a god or a godlike figure, and in that sense, demonstrates how someone can deal with loss from a very different angle. It wouldn't take long before it was cemented as one of the greatest books of her career. On December 23, 2021, Seven days before the 18-year anniversary of her husband's death, Joan Didion would pass away as a result of complications due to Parkinson's disease in her Manhattan apartment at the age of 87. I will leave you with a quote from one of the most vital and important words in the realm of new journalism. You get the sense that it's possible simply to go through life noticing things and writing them down and that this is okay it's worth doing, that the seemingly insignificant things that most of us spend our days noticing are really significant, have meaning, and tell us something. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemo Hardin. 
We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep turning those pages.